Thanks for listening to the Rock Hill Podcast. At Rock Hill, we're all about reaching people with the life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus. Listen in as Pastor Matt Chappell teaches how God's Word applies to our everyday lives. Wired for worship. John chapter number four. If you're there, would you say amen? John four. And uh, we'll study uh, this morning several verses, uh, but just for our scripture reading time together, let's start reading in verse number 20. The Bible says this, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And we're kind of jumping in right in the middle of a conversation here, and this is a conversation between Jesus and a woman of Samaria, the Samaritan woman. Verse number 21, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, Believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. And uh, what he's speaking of there is that salvation was going to, the Messiah was going to come uh, through Jewish genealogy. Salvation is of the Jews. Verse 23, the hour cometh, and now is when the true worshipers everybody say true the true worshipers shall worship the father in spirit and in truth for the father seeketh such to worship him god is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth if you believe it would you say amen Amen. father thank you for this day that you've given us and uh, god thank you for our time together that we've already had this morning and focusing on you And uh, Lord, I pray that for the next few minutes, we we will be able to put away any distractions or any thoughts of what we're going to do after the service or what we have going on this week. God, I pray that we would focus on your word. And God, I pray that we would use these next few minutes together to, uh, to learn some principles that we can apply to our lives that would be beneficial, helpful, that we can leave this room changed because of your word, Lord. And I got to pray that we would grasp and understand this concept of worship and uh, really seek to be the worshipers that you intended for us to be. And uh, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. About 40 years ago, uh, there was a story of a woman who was from Mexico who was cooking breakfast. And uh, she was cooking breakfast, and she put a tortilla in the skillet. And uh, she was getting ready to make a meal, and she accidentally burned the tortilla. And when she burned the tortilla, she recognized and she saw that there was a burnt image on the tortilla that she thought looked like the face of Jesus. And so she thought, wow, this looks like Jesus. This must be some sort of a sign. And so she went and she got all her friends, and all her friends were like, wow, that does look like Jesus. And so she went and she got her priest, and her priest said, wow, that does look like Jesus. And so literally this woman uh, took this tortilla, and she made some, uh, she enshrined it in this glass casing, and uh, she put uh, cotton balls all around it because she wanted it to look like Jesus was floating in the clouds. And so she put this in this casing, and literally, true story, over 8,000 people came to worship Jesus on a tortilla. And we can hear a story like that and we can think a true story. We can think, uh, man, that's a little far-fetched, almost laughable that people would go and uh, they would worship a a tortilla. But really that story reveals something that is very true and very prominent about the human nature. And that is that we are all wired to worship. There's something in the fabric of our DNA woven into the fabric of our thinking that that we are hardwired for worship. All of us, you and me and everyone on the planet is an unceasing worshiper. We are worshiping at all times. 
Whether you are religious or whether you are irreligious, you are actively worshiping. We've all identified something in our lives that we esteem that has value, that we think is worthy of our time and our energy and our resources, that we feel is worthy of our time. And what we do is we make these things the object of our worship. The, the word worship simply means this, to ascribe worth to a person or to an object to ascribe worth to a person or to an object. And so we see this carried out in many different forms. We see, uh, if you've ever been to any sort of professional sporting event, NFL game, basketball, NBA game, I love going to those sorts of things. But when you go, what do you see? You see people that will paint their bodies and bellies and faces, and they'll raise their hands, and they'll scream, and they'll shout, and sometimes they'll cry. Why? Because that is the object of their worship. That is where they are ascribing value. And so worship comes in all shapes and forms. And God created us for worship. He designed us for worship. The Bible says this in Colossians 1.16, for by him were all things, everybody say all things, all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And so we were created and designed and destined for worship, but something has gone terribly wrong with the wiring of our worship. The Bible says this in Romans chapter 1, verse 24 through 25, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. See, what we've done is we be, we've become fixated on the creature, the creation, and we lose sight of the creator of it all. And so this morning, it's not a matter of if we worship, it's a matter of what we worship. We're, we're all worshiping. The only question is, what are we ascribing value to? The Bible says this in Exodus chapter number 20, verse 2 through 5, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. No other gods before me, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And so uh, the Bible makes it very clear that we're not to put anything in place of God because anything in place of God becomes an idol. And so a lot of times, if you think of the word idolatry, or you think of idols, maybe you conjure up an image in your mind of a little wooden statue that, that someone would go and bow down to, and that would be idolatry. But idolatry takes on many forms. Anything that takes the place of God, anything that prioritizes itself in your life in the place of God becomes an idol. It can even be a good thing. A good thing in your life becoming an ultimate thing is idolatrous. If you take something that's good, that, that, that deserves our time and that deserves our energy, but you make it the main thing in your life, you make it the object of your worship, that becomes idolatry. That's why 1 John 5.21 says this, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. I amen myself there. <laughs> the truth is, whatever you worship, you will become like. In the Old Testament... Uh, uh, God often referred to the nation of Israel as blind, deaf, and dumb. And that is because the idols that they worshipped were blind, deaf, and dumb. See, whatever you revere, you will eventually resemble. 
whatever you ascribe your value to, whatever you describe uh, or whatever you, you, you ascribe your value to and your work to, you will eventually become like what you worship. And that's why it's imperative that we come together in our corporate worship setting to worship Jesus because we want to become more like Jesus. That's what it's all about. And so, so we all worship. It's not a matter of if we worship. It's a matter of what we worship. And we come to John chapter number four, and we see one of the most prominent and one of the most important scriptures in all of the Bible about this idea of worship. Jesus starts out the, uh, his journey in John chapter four, and the Bible says that he's headed to Galilee. And the Bible says in John 4, 4, that he must needs go through Samaria. And uh, we don't have time to completely unpack that, but Jesus said, I have to go through Samaria. And that would have been very significant, significant because the Jews of this time did not travel through Samaria. They did anything in their power to travel around Samaria because they wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. And so, but Jesus comes along and he says, I've got to go through Samaria. Aren't you thankful that Jesus isn't afraid to break racial walls and to tear those down and say, hey, I have a divine appointment with this Samaritan woman at the well, so we're going to go right through Samaria. And so they're going and the disciples are, are thinking, what are we doing? And, and uh, Jesus shows up at the well that day and he begins to have this conversation with uh, this theologically confused and this, this woman whose life was completely messed up. And she begins to ask Jesus and talk to Jesus about this concept of worship. And Jesus responds by giving us some great insight to what true worship is all about. Does anybody believe this morning that it's important for us to learn what true worship is all about? There's a lot, if there is true worship, then we know that there is also false worship, and we want to make sure that we're getting it right. And so Jesus talks about this concept of true worship. And from John chapter number four this morning, I want to give us four uh, principles about true uh, worship uh, together. Number one, if you're taking notes, is this. Barriers to true worship must be identified. Barriers to true worship must be identified. Now, we're going to use this woman at the well as a case study this morning about uh, what were some barriers to, barriers to her true worship. And uh, we find three different barriers in her life that were, that were stealing the worship, robbing the worship from her. The first one is this, short-term satisfaction. Short-term satisfaction. Notice what the Bible says in verse number 12. If you're there, would you say amen? amen. Verse number 12, the woman says this, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us, all, gave us the well? Everybody say the well. And drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. See, this woman was looking for satisfaction from all the wrong places. She was looking for satisfaction from a well, and Jesus said, that's not what it's about. You drink from here, you're going you're gonna to get thirsty again. You're going to keep on uh, uh, pursuing all sorts of things. You're going to pursue religion. You're going to pursue relationships. But none of that can give you the satisfaction that Jesus can give you. He says, you can drink from all this. You can go to all these different wells. You can search for fulfillment. You can search for satisfaction. But only Jesus will give you the satisfaction that you're looking for. You drink from all this, you're going to be thirsty again. This is short-term satisfaction. I like what uh, one author, Tim Keller, he put it this way. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, we may call it codependency, but it is really idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I had that, then I'll feel something, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. If there is something in your life that you have to have to have satisfaction, if there is a job that you have to have in order to find value, 
If there is a dream that you have to pursue in order to find value, in order to find worth, whatever that is, that has become the object of your worship. Because whatever that is, that is only short-term satisfaction. That is short-term fulfillment. You can find all, all these sorts of different things. You can look through all the different wells, but only Jesus and Jesus alone can give you the satisfaction that your heart truly desires. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I love what the Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, verse number 4. When Christ, who is our life, pause right there and just think about that for a second. Christ, who is our life, he's not just something that we add to our life. He's not just kind of a, a compartmentalized Jesus where we come in on Sunday mornings and we think about Jesus. No, Christ should be our everything. He is our life. And many times the reason we can't come into his presence and worship the way that God intended for us to worship is because we're pursuing all the wrong wells. We're looking for satisfaction in so many different areas of life when true satisfaction is only in a relationship with Jesus. And so uh, this woman had a barrier to her true worship, and that barrier was uh, searching in all the wrong wells. But secondly, the second barrier to her worship was unconfessed sin. Notice the conversation continues in verse number 15. The Bible says this, the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. And Jesus was talking about everlasting water. Of course, he's talking about uh, eternal life. He's giving her this good news. Hey, uh, you can have eternal satisfaction in me. And then the woman says, man, that sounds good. Tell me where it is. I want it. And Jesus says in verse number 16, Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. Jesus says, okay, go get your husband. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and, the, and whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. So Jesus really exposes the reality of the situation, what's going on here. Jesus says, oh, okay, you want this everlasting water? First we need to deal with something called sin. He says, go, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He's like, yeah, you're right. You don't have a husband because you've had five husbands and the person that you're with right now is not even your husband. And then the woman quickly tries to change the subject. But see, unconfessed sin in our lives will always be a barrier to true worship. And the reason why sometimes we can't connect with God and the reason why sometimes we feel like just something isn't working right and we come into worship and we just don't feel it and, and that we just don't know uh, the direction that we're supposed to take is often because there is sin in our lives that needs to be dealt with. This woman has this unconfessed sin. She had this problem of sin. Before Katie and I moved to Fontana, we, uh, we had this interim period where we lived in Oceanside. And uh, uh, we lived in a one-bedroom apartment with two children. And, uh, and uh, Katie was pregnant. And so this was uh, kind of a, a difficult situation for a couple months. We had two toddlers, and Katie was pregnant, and the air conditioning didn't quite work right in this small apartment. Excuse me, and I remember uh, it, was, it was difficult to get the uh, kids to uh, try to go to bed. They kept on wanting to talk to each other and kept on wanting to play games and different things. And, and uh, I remember uh, throughout this apartment, uh, time that we had in this apartment, that our daughter lived. She kept on, uh, after we thought she had gone to bed, she would come out and uh, she would have a blanket over her head. And she would kind of slowly walk out. And she knew that she was supposed to be sleeping. And she would kind of slowly walk out. And uh, she thought, she literally thought that we could not see her because she had the blanket over her head. And so she would kind of slowly walk out. And we could hear her kind of like giggling a little bit. And her shoulders would be shaking. And, and uh, she was walking out. And finally, she would come out and she would try to scare us. And we would just look at her like, Liv, go back to bed. Like, we, we saw you the whole time. And I thought about that. And I, I wonder if that's not often how God views us. When it comes to our sins, so often 
We want to act like nobody can see it and act like it's not there. And, and we try to hide it and kind of cover it up. But God knows it all. <laughs> no matter how much we try to hide it or cover it up or try to conceal it, God will reveal it. God knows it all. And Jesus says to this woman, hey, yeah, let's talk about eternal life. Let's talk about salvation. You can have this water. It's readily available. But first, you've got to repent and get some things right in your life. And maybe the reason why you can't worship the way that God intended for you to worship is because there's some sin that needs to be dealt with. And I have some good news for you. The Bible says this in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. Everybody say faithful. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Aren't you thankful today that we serve a God of forgiveness who says, hey, come to me. Give it to me. I'll carry your burden. I'll forgive you. I'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. See, we have a major problem called sin. Our righteousness, our good works was never going to cut it. The Bible says in Isaiah that our righteousness, our good works is as filthy rags. But Jesus came and said, you know what, I'll forgive you and I'll impute my righteousness to you. I will declare you righteous just as if we never sinned. And so this barrier to true worship was this unconfessed sin, but there was a third one in her life and it was ignorance to scripture. Notice what it says in verse number 22. Jesus said, ye, ye worship, ye know not what? Jesus says, listen, you don't even know what you worship. You're confused about this. And it's, it's interesting that, that she was trying to have this theological discussion. And we're going to see in a minute, she, she brought up this idea of worship and she wants to talk about this. And Jesus says, hey, let me just pause you for a second. You don't even know what you worship. She was ignorant to scripture. Simply put, if you don't know Jesus or have a shallow understanding of scripture, that will be a barrier to your worship. You can never worship the way that God intended for you to worship if there is an ignorance of Scripture where you don't really know what you believe. The Bible says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. So on the flip side of that, as Christians, we need to do what Colossians 3.16 tells us. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one, one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And so we have to understand, first of all, when it comes to this idea of worship, that there will be some barriers to true worship. And we've got to identify those barriers and remove them so we can worship the way that God intended for us to worship. If you're on the same page, would you say Amen. amen. Number two this morning, true worship is not confined to a location. True worship is not confined to a location. The Bible says this in verse number 20. Actually, back, let's back it up to verse number 19. They're having this conversation. The woman says, the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. She's like, something's going on here. He, Jesus just called out her sin, says, you've had five husbands. How could he know all that? And she's like, I perceive that you are a prophet. In verse number 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the, best, is, is the place where men ought to worship. And so she brings up this whole debate that was going on at the time. Where was the correct place to worship? Was it the Samaritans believed that the, uh, the best place to worship was Mount Gerizim? Uh, Sanballat built a, a temple there, and that's where the Samaritans worshiped. And then, of course, the Jews worshiped at the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. And she says, there's this debate among the Jews and the Samaritans. I think you're, maybe you're a prophet. Maybe you can answer this debate for me. Where is the proper place to worship? You tell me. Is it Jerusalem? Or is it Jerusalem? Which one is it? Notice what Jesus says in verse number 21. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. I love Jesus' answer and his approach to this debate that was taking place. He says, You know what? Soon it's not even going to matter. 
the hour is coming pretty soon, and even is now, that it's not going to matter about Jerusalem or Jerusalem. It's not even about a place. And I love this answer to this debate because Jesus is focusing big picture. He's focusing on long term. And I thought about that and I thought about all the little debates that so often take place in churches and all the little preferential issues that we get so upset about and we want to know the right answer to. And really in the long run, they don't matter. So let's just keep on focusing on what really does matter. Let's keep on focusing on all of eternity and keep on trying to reach people with the life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus. Let's put the preferential issues to the side. Let's make sure our doctor is right. We're not going to budge on that. But when it comes to all these little things, let's focus on big picture, things that are really going to matter in all of eternity. Jesus says the hour is going to come. That doesn't, that, that's not even going to matter. And he says you're not going to worship in this mountain or in Jerusalem. It's not about either place. What was Jesus saying? True worship is not confined to a location. True worship is about a person, not about a place. It's not about just coming to a specific place or being in a certain spot. No, it's about a person. His name is Jesus. Psalms 150 verse number one says this, praise ye the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in the firmament of his power. That verse tells us the place of our worship. It's in the firmament of his power. Where's that? The word firmament means the uh, expanse of celestial bodies. What, what does that mean? It means everywhere. Wherever you are, that's where you ought to worship. The where of worship is wherever you are. It's in the expanse of the celestial bodies. It's wherever we are, wherever God has placed us, whether it's church on Sunday morning, whether it's work on, uh, on Monday morning, whether it's at a family outing or a, a, some sort of friend activity at a party. Hey, that's where we ought to give glory to God. That's where we ought to worship him. We can find worship in any season and in any place. Worship is not confined to a location. I read a story about a billionaire, Howard Hughes, and when he passed on, uh, he owned several uh, hotels and casinos in different places like this. And, and uh, when he passed on, the public relations director for one of his companies uh, asked the casinos to give him a, a moment of silence in the casinos. And they said, can you just give 60 seconds moment of silence where nobody says anything? And so they all agreed. They said, okay, we'll give him a moment of silence. And, and so uh, they, they, they did that. And it, all, for 60 seconds, all the music stopped. All the gambling stopped. Everybody kind of stopped talking. And for 60 seconds, they were quiet and uh, gave him a moment of silence. And at the end of that awkward 60 seconds, one of the guys that worked at the casino said, okay, go ahead and roll the dice. He's had his minute. And I thought about that, and I thought, tragically, I believe that's what many Christians do with God. Out of their busy schedule, they slot one hour a week where they come on Sunday morning. Let's give God his little bit of time, and let's go back to doing what really matters to us. What we've done is we've tragically caged and confined worship to a location. We've caged our worship to a time slot. And Jesus was saying, hey, it's not about this place. It's not about that place. It's wherever you are. It's about a person. You can worship Jesus wherever you are. It's not about a location. The Bible says this in Matthew 15, verse, verses 8 and 9. This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. See, we can come in on Sunday and we can know the words to say and we can know what to do and how to act, but our hearts can be in the completely wrong place. I remember... Uh, not too long ago, I was in Israel, and uh, we went, and we were looking at some of the uh, historical biblical sites, and we went to the Temple Mount. We, we saw uh, the Western Wall and where people go and they pray, and, and uh, we were kind of looking at all these places, 
And uh, we went, our, our, our tour guide that was kind of there with us, he went and he took us behind uh, the western wall. There is this tunnel that you can kind of walk in. It's kind of behind everything. And I remember we walked through this tunnel. It was really cold. It was really dark. And we were kind of walking through all this rock. And, and uh, we came to this spot where there were people praying, and they were praying fervently. And uh, they were kind of just in this cage, uh, in this uh, confined location. I believe we have a picture this morning. And uh, these people were praying there at this wall. And our, our guide told us that this wall, this spot, is where they believe is the close, closest spot to where the Holy of Holies would have been. And so people uh, every day try to come here and come to this spot because they believe this spot is going to get their prayers answered. And they believe that this place is where God's going to hear the, uh, them the most. And so they come to this certain spot. But I want to tell you this morning, and I want to remind you that the Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Aren't you thankful that our worship and our prayer does not have to be restricted to a certain place, but it's wherever we are. The Bible says this in 1 Timothy 2, 8, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Paul said to Timothy, man, it's my desire, it's my prayer that, that, that men of God will lift their hands, that they will pray wherever they are. Our worship is not confined to a location. Number three this morning. Number three is this. God is in pursuit of true worshipers. God is in pursuit of true worshipers. If you're with me, would you say Amen. Verse number 23 says this, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And we'll come back to that. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. The Father is seeking after those people to worship him. He's, he's in pursuit of true worshipers. God is looking for true worshipers. He is looking at Rock Hill Baptist Church, hoping to find and longing to find true worshipers. It's his pursuit. And what I want to tell you this morning is that if that is God's pursuit, then that should become our priority. If God is in pursuit of true worshipers, then we ought to make that a priority. We ought to make it a priority in our personal worship. We ought to spend time every day looking into the word of God and spending time in prayer and worshiping God and thanking him and praising him for who he is on a daily basis in our personal worship, but also in our corporate worship. Our corporate worship is when we gather together as a group of believers and we come together under one roof to worship the name of Jesus. We ought to make that a priority. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. But exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. And so God's word makes it very clear that we are to prioritize this corporate worship, gathering together, forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. You say, well, wait a second. I thought we just thought that, uh, just learned that, that that worship is not confined to a location. I can worship God at the beach and I can worship God in nature. And that is true. You can. But God established the Lord's Day Sunday so that we would be faithful to it. And if there's anything in your life that you ought to be faithful to, it's to this gathering that we do on Sunday mornings. It is our corporate worship time where we can come together and praise the name of Jesus. Jesus and sharpen one another and help one another and hold each other accountable and pray for one another. We ought not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And to do so is to directly disregard the commandment that is in Scripture. The Bible says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse number 12. And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a three-four cord is not quickly broken. And I'm going to ask Matt to come up here. He's going to help me for a second. And I like this verse. I'm going to read it one more time. And uh, try to focus on the, on the screen or, or if you have a Bible. 
Ecclesiastes 4.12, and if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And, and uh, here we're learning about uh, how there is strength in numbers and how God designed us for relationship and iron sharpening iron. He wants us to be in community and he wants us to be in fellowship. And what happens is a lot of times is uh, we will uh, kind of embrace the Lone Ranger mentality. Uh, where we will think it's okay to kind of isolate ourselves, and it's okay if I miss a little bit of church, and it's okay if I kind of just don't go in a small group, and I don't want to serve on a team, and I'll kind of just go off and kind of do my own thing. And when we go in isolation, uh, the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes that one can be broken. Matt, do you think you can break that? There you go. See, I knew Matt could break it. That's why I called him up. And uh, so that's what happens. See, where there is isolation, there will be vulnerability. I kind of like preaching with this. I'm going to kind of point it. Where there's isolation, there will be vulnerability. We kind of just go off on our own and kind of say, this is not a big deal. It's, it's just kind of every once in a while we go off in isolation. Matt, can you break it again? Yep. There you go. Let's give it up for Matt. He's so strong. But the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 4, but a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And so when we come together as believers, when we come together... And when we strengthen one another, we come together as a threefold cord. When we prioritize corporate worship, when we say, hey, this is something that's important to me. I need to be around other believers. I need to be around that fellowship. You think Matt can break this? No. <laughs> come on, Matt, try hard. Oh, almost. <laughs> Matt, you're going to ruin the illustration. Don't actually break it. <laughs> the idea is that when we come together, we are stronger and we are better together. And God designed us for corporate worship. He designed for us to be together and to fellowship with one another. And so let's stop isolating ourselves and saying, hey, I'm going to do my own thing. But let's come together. Let's prioritize our corporate worship. Let's get in a small group. Let's join a team. Let's say, I need that fellowship to keep on going. See, fellowship is a powerful sustaining force in the life of a believer. Where there is isolation, there will be vulnerability. But where there is fellowship, there will be sustainability. See, we will be stronger together. We've got to prioritize corporate worship. Say, I've, I'm going to be faithful to God's house. I'm going to make this commitment. The Bible says this in Colossians 2, verse number 2, that their hearts might be comforted being knit together. Knit together. How many of you knit? Can I see your hands? You've knitted something before. You're a knitter. Can I see your hands? All the knitters. <laughs> okay, there's like three of you. Okay, knitting together, becoming strong, that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love. We need to prioritize this coming together, this gathering of believers where we can lift up the name of Jesus and sharpen one another. God is in pursuit of true worshipers. He is pursuing true worshipers. And so let's make sure that we're making that our priority in personal and in corporate worship. Number four this morning, true worship involves your heart and your head. True worship involves your heart and your head. Notice what Jesus says in verse number 24. God is a spirit. That means that that is the essence of God's being. He's not confined to a location either, either. And if God is not contained, our worship should not be contained. He is a spirit. He is everywhere. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There are three times in the book of John where John says that we must do something. In John 3, we must be born again. Later in John 3, he says the Son of Man must be lifted up. And here in John 4, he says that we must worship him in spirit and truth. It's something that is not a suggestion. It's a command that we must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
The word spirit means the animating force of a person. It's talking about your spirit, your heart, your inner person. So we are to worship God with all of our, our heart, our spirit, our enthusiasm, uh, making sure that we're bringing energy to our worship. And then uh, in truth, and uh, the, the word truth is factual without error, and that speaks of your intellectual, your head. And so we are to worship with our hearts and with our head, intellectually and emotionally. And it's an interesting comparison because Jesus is actually comparing the Samaritans and the Jews of the day. See, the Samaritans were very enthusiastic. They were very enthusiastic about their worship. They had a lot of spirit. In fact, to this day, uh, the Samaritans are enthusiastic about their worship. You can go to Mount Gerizim today on certain holy holidays, and you will find the Samaritans still sacrificing animals in their worship. And they're enthusiastic about it. I believe we have a picture of them this morning. This is uh, Samaritans traveling on this Mount Gerizim to go and worship. And they have a lot of spirit. They're all in. They, their heart is in it. But the problem with the Samaritans is they reject the Old Testament canon. They only adhere to and only believe in the, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Everything else they reject. And so they have spirit. They have heart. But they don't have truth. And then Jesus was contrasting those in Jerusalem. They, they had the truth. That they knew that the Messiah would come uh, through, through the line of David. They knew that the Messiah would come in, in Jewish genealogy. That they had the truth, but they also rejected the truth because they rejected Jesus. But they kind of prided themselves in knowledge. And, and, and we know what, what, what the law says. And, and we know the Old Testament canon. We adhere to the whole Hebrew canon. And they had this knowledge and they had this pride, but there was no heart. They were very proud and legalistic. I think we have a picture of, of Jerusalem at the Temple Mount here. And, and uh, so, so this woman was saying, where should we worship, in, in, in Jerusalem or in Jerusalem? And Jesus was saying, it's not about a place. It's not about a place. It's about a person. But you do need to worship in spirit and in truth. See, on one side, uh, with the Samaritans, they really had this enthusiastic heresy. But when it came to the Jews, they had this lifeless orthodoxy where, where, where they had the right knowledge, but they didn't have the right spirit. And this is what Jesus is saying. You need both. You need your heart and your head to be involved in worship. Now, let's be honest. We all kind of lean one way or the other, don't we? Some people are truth people. Some people are spirit people. Truth people, it's very black and white. This is how it is. And I don't really care what anybody thinks about it. This is what it is. And then some people are, truth, are, are spirit people, and they're like, let's just hold hands and let's sing kumbaya. Let's just all get along. It's all good. And both sides are very dangerous. And Jesus says, no, you need both spirit and truth. Truth and spirit. One without the other is very dangerous. We need both. So I want to conclude by talking about both of these and how we can apply these to our lives, and we'll be done this morning. And uh, uh, the first thing I want to talk about is the spirit, the animating force of a person. And we're talking about spirit in our, in our corporate worship together. The Bible says this in the book of Psalms, and, and uh, the book of Psalms is, a, is a, really a worship book. And I love the last chapter in the book of Psalms. Uh, 150, and uh, it, it's a praise chapter. It talks about our praise. It talks about our worship. And in just a few short verses, the word praise is mentioned 13 times. So apparently David did not get the memo about people who don't like repetitive lyrics in worship <laughs> because he said praise an awful lot. He just said the same thing over and over. Listen to what it says in Psalms 150, verse 2 through 6. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the psaltery and the harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. I'll just leave that one right there for a second. Praise him with the stringed instruments and organs. Praise him upon the loud cymbals. Praise him upon the high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Amen. 
The book of Psalms, like I said, it's a worship book. And uh, I wanted to conclude by, by teaching and, and sharing something that I shared with actually our core team when we were getting ready to start this church. Long before uh, we ever even had a service, we got together as a small team and we said, what is our worship going to look like? What are we going to do when it comes to our, our worship corporately together, worshiping the Lord and our song? And, uh, and uh, we did a study together. In the book of Psalms, there are many words for praise and there are many words for worship. And if you take the top seven words for praise in the book of Psalms and you narrow them down, the top seven, I'm going to give them to you this morning. And it's so interesting what these words mean, how God intended for us to worship, a biblical pattern for worship. Is it okay if I give them to you this morning? Is it okay if I give them to you this morning? The first word for worship is this word, hallel. Everybody say hallel. The word means to praise and to celebrate. It's where we get our word, hallelujah. This meaning involves clapping, cheering, and excitement. We come to church and say, why do you clap? Why do you get so excited? Because we believe in hallel. We believe in hallelujah. God deserves our worship. He deserves our praise. He deserves us for getting excited. We can get excited about all kinds of things. Nobody thinks it's odd when you go to a baseball game and someone hits a home run and everybody raises their hands. But when we do it in church, it makes us uncomfortable. We ought to be reversed. We ought to say, God, you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our praise. Hallel, hallelujah. You are worth it. The next word is yada to praise God with extended hands. Psalms 9.1 says this, I will praise thee, yada, O Lord, with my whole heart, I will show forth all thy marvelous works. See, it's an act of acknowledging God, you are worth it. God, I wanna acknowledge that you're in control. I wanna acknowledge that you're good. You're worthy of the worship. God, I wanna acknowledge that and celebrate your name. The next word is barak, and it means to pray, uh, to praise God by kneeling or bowing, and it carries the idea of having humility saying we want to worship God with a spirit of humility. It's not about us trying to get attention. No, it's not about, it's not about trying to get recognition. No, it's about bowing before the Lord and, and posturing ourselves in a position of humility to say, God, we, we know, we recognize that, that we're not worth it. And we want to have the spirit of humility and the spirit of prayer uh, in our worship. The next word is zamar. It means to clap and sing with a joyful expression. Can I tell you today, it's okay to smile. I love looking at people's face during worship, during singing. It's so funny sometimes because you will be singing these songs about the greatness of our God and, and uh, we'll sing, you know, you are good, good, oh, you're good, good father. We ought to smile and sing with all of our heart and sing with all of our soul. It's okay to be joyful. My favorite one is when people sing, how, this, there's a song called, How Can I Keep From Singing Your Name? And they, they sing it with no energy sometimes. And I think, well, you can keep from singing your name because that's what it looks like right now. We ought to sing with a joyful expression. That's a biblical pattern for worship. The, word, the next word is shabak. This is a good one. An unashamed shout, not just loud, putting your heart into it. An unashamed shout. The Bible says this in Psalms 47 verse 1. Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout. Everybody say shout. Shout unto the Lord with the voice of triumph. I've heard so many people say in church, you know, man, that song was so good. I just wanted to shout. Go for it. Shout a little bit. It's okay to talk. It's okay to communicate. Hey, we're here to praise the Lord. 
Now, I understand that sometimes uh, preaching and worship is more surgical in nature. When we're dealing with heavy topics like sin and different things and suffering, I understand that it's not always going to feel celebratory, but there ought to be an overwhelming sense in us that, man, God is so good that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for our sins so that I could have eternal life forever with him, that I could have freedom from my sin and a relationship with him and a home in heaven. If you think about that and you can't get excited, then maybe you're not saved to begin with because we ought to praise and celebrate the fact that we have a home in heaven and that God is so good to us. The next word is the word toda. Everybody say toda. Worship by the extension of hands and adoration or agreement. And so there's actually two words in the book of Psalms that carry the idea of lifting your hands. And the first one means to acknowledge that God is good, to acknowledge that he is Savior. And the second one is a sign of surrender. And in the etymology of the word, the root meaning of the word, it literally means to not care what people think about you. There's this passage in the Old Testament where David is bringing the ark back into the town and, and uh, they are celebrating because there's the presence of God is returning to the city and David is actually dancing and he's singing and he's celebrating and David's wife, Michael, gets upset with him. And she's real sarcastic and she says, I can't worship before all the ladies today. Look at you, king. You're just worshiping and dancing all over the place. And I love David's response. He says, Michael, I didn't do it for you. I did it for the Lord. And so we ought to be able to have the heart that says, I don't care what people think about me in worship because I believe that my God is worthy of worship and I want to worship him with my spirit and in truth. One more, it's this Tehillah. And it means exuberant and spontaneous singing, singing with all your heart, singing loud and praising the name of Jesus. I wonder this morning, does your worship, does your corporate worship reflect a biblical pattern? We are to worship in spirit Al Martin said this, men have worship with open Bibles and with the name of Christ and the Bible on their lips while whole congregations before them have been held in the grip of barrenness and lifelessness and powerlessness. Where it has been weeks and months and years since our hearts have been ravished with the sight of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Years since any hymn has been sung with abandonment. Years since a tear has trickled down the face of a worshiper. Years since a hallelujah flowed out of a bursting heart. It's my prayer that when God looks at Rock Hill Baptist Church that he sees true worshipers that are worshiping with, with their spirit and then in truth and then in truth so spirit and in truth John 1 17 says this for the law was given by Moses but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ first Timothy 3 15 says but if I tarry long that thou may that thou mayest know how to how thou oughtest to behave uh, thyself in the house of God which is the church of the living God the pillar and the ground of the truth we simply cannot afford to water down the truth we simply cannot afford to water down the gospel the only empowered gospel is an unadulterated gospel it's an un, uh, uh, undiluted gospel it's a gospel that's pure. It's a gospel that's Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and that's it. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. That is the pure, unadulterated gospel, and that is the only gospel that contains power. It's got to be true. First John 1, 9, my, my little children, let us not love in word, either in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Jesus is the way. Maybe this morning you're here, and we're talking about worship, and we're talking about worshiping in spirit and in truth, but maybe you've never claimed the truth. The truth is in a person. The truth is Jesus Christ. And maybe you've never had a real relationship with Jesus and you have some knowledge and you have some information, but you've never placed your faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And I would say that today could be the best day of your life. Today could be the day of salvation for you where you place your faith in Jesus and you secure your home in heaven forever because he is the truth. 
I love how this story ends. Two verses and we'll be done. John 4, 28, if you have your Bible open, you can see it. John 4, 28, the woman then left her water pot and she went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man which told me all things that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? This woman who now placed her faith in Jesus believes that he is the Messiah, goes back to her city, goes back to her town and says, you guys have got to come and meet this Jesus. He's told me everything about my life. He's told me everything that I've ever done. You've got to come meet him. And then John 4, 39 says this, and many, everybody say many, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman. A lot of times we think that for revival to happen, it's going to take a celebrity or it's going to take someone famous or someone well-known or a huge church. No, it just takes one person who says, I want to be a true worshiper. I want to go out into my community and let people know what Jesus did for me and share my testimony with them. See, where there is worship, there will always be witness. And let your worship be a witness. Let's go out into this community and say, hey, we have an open house. We have an open house Sunday where we want to invite you to come in and let's step back and see what God can do. I believe that God can bring a revival to this city and to this region. And I believe with all my heart that he can do it with the people that are sitting in this room. It just takes some true worshipers that say, man, I want to worship in spirit and in truth. I want to worship with all my heart and soul. I want to be an unceasing, incurable worshiper where I can fix my eyes on Jesus and make sure that in whatever I do, I'm fixing my worth and ascribing my worth to a person. His name is Jesus. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. God is in pursuit of true worshipers. We've got to remove the barriers. Stop looking in all the wrong wells for our purpose. Stop trying to find satisfaction in a job. Stop trying to find fulfillment in a dream. Those can all be good godly things, but if we give it the priority in our lives, that Jesus deserves, it becomes idolatrous. We can't confine our worship to a location. We can't just say, okay, okay, God, you can have an hour of my week on Sunday mornings. No, we've got to have a heart that says, God, I want to worship you every single day of the week, and I want to prioritize my personal worship. I want to prioritize my corporate worship. I want to make sure that I'm making the house of God a priority, and nothing is going to stand in the way of that priority. I'm going to make coming on Sunday mornings so incredibly vital to my spiritual health because a threefold cord cannot be easily broken. There is strength in numbers. Thanks again for listening today. If this message was an encouragement to you, let us know. You can email us at hello at rockhill.church and keep up with all the latest news at rockhill.church or on Instagram at rockhillchurch.